Welcome to Catholic Light. Join me, Becca Doherty, each week as we shed a little light while keeping the conversation light. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Catholic Light. On today's episode and next week's episode, we will round out our discussion of the Eucharist. So recall we're in part two, which covers the sacraments, section two, which goes through each of the seven sacraments. We've covered the sacraments of initiation, baptism, confirmation, and sorry, we have not covered, we are covering and just about done covering um, the sacraments of initiation, baptism, confirmation, and now the Eucharist. So at the end of next week's episode, we will complete our discussion of the Eucharist and just very briefly start uh, the sacrament of reconciliation, one of the two sacraments of healing. And then um, part two, section two, finishes with the sacraments at the service of communion. So holy matrimony and holy orders. And then we will be halfway down the catechism and uh, move on to part three, which discusses the commandments, and part four, which discusses prayer. So a week from today's episode, the next episode, we will be one year into this podcast and we will be at the end of next week's episode exactly halfway done the catechism. So there are 2,865 uh, paragraphs in the catechism. At the end of next week's episode, we will be at paragraph 1433. So I guess halfway would be 1432.5. <laughs> so we'll be just a little bit, a little bit past uh, halfway. So thanks again for joining me on this journey. I projected two years uh, at the beginning of the podcast, and even with a month-long maternity leave, thanks to little Lucy, um, we are right on track. So God willing, we'll persevere. Who, I mean, only God knows what, what lies between uh, now and next year, but um, thanks for being with me this past year. Uh, depending on when you grew up and what shows, if you watch shows, what shows you watched growing up, you might be familiar with this little segment on Sesame Street. So as a child, uh, my siblings and I watched Sesame Street, and there was this one segment where the screen was divided into four parts, and three of in three of the four, uh, three out of four quadrants, there would be um, children either like wearing something or playing with a toy or doing something, and then in the fourth quadrant, that child would be wearing something different, playing with a different toy, doing something different. And there, let's see if I can remember the theme song. Three of these things belong together. One of these things is not the same. So, um, you know, as a child, I think ses- the producers of Sesame Street are are teaching you, uh, teaching their viewers patterns, um, you know, things that go together, sameness and difference. And um, so it, I guess, formed me. It was formative. And I've thought back to that that little jingle and that concept, you know, uh, as an adult. And so recently, a, a few weeks ago, so I've, I've mentioned I'm from the Philadelphia area, and uh, God bless the Eagles. The Eagles went to the Super Bowl this year. Sorry for any Eagles fans listening. Um, sorry for, for our loss there. I texted my youngest brother, who's a big Eagles fan and lives in Philadelphia. I said, uh, you know, I texted him, Maddie, I'm so sorry for your loss. My condolences. And he writes back, um, like, ah, it's okay, just a football game. And then, you know, the next text and by football game by just a football game I mean I'm devastated or like I can't believe it so sorry to my uh, uh my listeners out there who are 
Philadelphia Eagles fans, and uh, sorry for your loss. Um, but anyway, leading up to the Super Bowl, uh, there was one day that my sister scooped my daughter Sophia to hang out with her kids and one of her friend's kids. And Christy sent me a, a picture at one point, texted me a picture of all the kids hanging out. There were, there were eight children total in the photo. Everyone was wearing, everyone with the exception of Sophia, was wearing Eagles gear. So, you know, there's the green, the the black, the the eagle and, and uh, you know, the emblem in Philadelphia across like headbands and T-shirts and pants. And then God bless little Sophia was on the end with um, like a purple shirt and I think hot pink pants. And then she likes to wear skirts, jean skirts over her stretch pants. And then she had on like these funky colored sneakers and, you know, a fun headband. And I joke that uh, – that Sophia is like St. Therese in that there's this story told of St. Therese where her sister offered her a basket of different items and, you know, said, Therese, what, what would you like? And she said, I choose all. I'll take the whole basket and everything in it. And then St. Therese in her autobiography, The Story of a Soul, relayed later that that moment was, was formative in understanding her relationship with Jesus in that she just wanted everything whether it was good or bad, you know, joy or suffering, she she chose all when it came to the Lord. She just wanted everything. So I joke that that Sophia, like St. Therese, chooses all, a, a purple shirt, hot pink pants. If she has the option to wear a headband, a hat, or a scrunchie, she'll, she'll just put them all on because, you know, life is short and it's so good and let's just embrace it all. So anyway, my sister texts me this picture of all the kids and I text back saying seven of these things are like, or seven of these things go together. And one of these things is not the same <laughs> little Sophia in her non-Eagles brightly colored gear. So I'm thinking of this in regards to the Eucharist and then on the, the second half of the episode today, we'll read paragraphs 1373 through 1401. And it's paragraph 1373 that says, there's something very different about the Eucharist. So the, the seven sacraments are seven sacraments, um, seven modes of drawing closer to Christ, receiving his grace, seven things he instituted by which we can receive this invisible grace through visible signs. But the Eucharist is set apart. Okay, It's similar. It's not, um, you know, like on Sesame Street, three things or six sacraments are alike, and then the Eucharist is different. It's a sacrament. It's a visible sign of an invisible reality or a visible transactions, not the right word, uh, a visible event that transmits invisible grace. But it is unique and um, we can say different, not just in degree, but in kind. Okay, so it's not like if I get baptized with just a little more water, then uh, my baptism will be on the the level of, of receiving the Eucharist. Or if I um, get sealed with a little more chrism by the bishop at my confirmation, um, or if I'm a little more contrite in confession, then those uh, sacraments are on the level of of the, the sacrament of the Eucharist. The Eucharist is in and of itself different from all the others. And why is that? It's because Christ, the second person, the Trinity, God himself, becomes actually substantially present in his body, blood, soul and divinity, and we receive him, okay, not just spiritually, um, not just under visible signs, but actually really holy. We, we come into communion with him in a, a physical and spiritual way, 
um, in a real true way every time we receive the Eucharist, which is just so awesome. Um, I think I've mentioned that in teaching theology over the years, I just have these moments where it's like, wow, I, I grew up with this personally. I've now been teaching this for years. But if you just stop for a moment and think about some of the things we believe and some of the things we do as Christians and Catholics, like it is just, it's wild and it's awesome. Um, you know, God is often portrayed as like this distant white bearded man on top of a mountain that just commands and desires our prayers and our obedience. But this this God, um, he becomes a human being, so he steps into our human timeline, takes on our, our weakness, our infirmity, um, as the, the scriptures say, and um, suffers, dies out of love for us. And then if that's not enough, as though that weren't enough, he then hides himself under these, these very mundane, my, one of my favorite themes in Catholicism, these very mundane, everyday um, things of bread and wine. Um, so he, he very humbly, lovingly submits himself once again to something that, is, that he created and is, is far beneath him um, so that we can receive him be in relationship and communion with him and, uh, you know, grow in our relationship with him. So how, how incredibly awesome. All right. So let's look at paragraph 1373. Bring out the catechism here. Bum, ba, da, bum. All right. Paragraph 1373 says, Christ Jesus, who died, yes, who was raised from the dead, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us, is present in many ways to his church. In his word, in his church's prayer, where two or three are gathered in my name, in the poor, the sick, and the imprisoned, in the sacraments of which he is the author, in the sacrifice of the mass, and in the person of the minister. And then the last line says, but he is present most especially in the Eucharistic species. Paragraph 1374 goes on to say, the mode of Christ's presence under the Eucharistic species is unique. It raises the Eucharist above the sacraments, above all the sacraments, as the perfection of the spiritual life and the end to which all the sacraments tend. And that last quote is, uh, if you look at the footnotes, if you're following along in the the physical catechism, you look at footnote 201, and that's a a quotation from St. Thomas Aquinas and his his great work, the Summa Theologica. So uh, the Eucharistic species is unique. I think it's worth discussing this, worth thinking about this, worth worth contemplating this in prayer, because um, it's easy to forget sometimes that we, in our modern culture, um, I think we we breathe in this air and then become very accustomed to this um, idea of equality in the sense that that everything's the same. So again, depending on your age, dear listener, you might like I did have grown up um, receiving a participation trophy for every sport you played. So uh, I played on an intramural softball team, uh, kindergarten through 12th grade. So as a senior in high school, some of my girlfriends and I continued to, to play softball, um, you know, for fun after school. And to this day, my dad still makes fun of the way when I, you know, have a catch now with my kids on the front lawn, he still makes fun of the way that I, that I throw a softball or a baseball. Um, so I'm not particularly good at that sport. And yet for, what, 13 years, kindergarten through 12th grade, I received a trophy every year because I 
am a unique and beautiful little butterfly, a unique and beautiful little snowflake, and I uh, should have been affirmed every year whether I was good or not. So this... Um, you know, this practice, this sentiment has has kind of crept into not only our sports, but I saw it a lot with teaching. Um, I would have students who, you know, studied very hard for an exam and um, prepared very well for a project or a presentation, and then other students who did not, you know, I saw the spectrum of a lot of effort to no effort at all. And um, if I ever gave a student a, a a less than stellar mark, oftentimes the parents would email me or call and, and ask, you know, why he, he tried. I'm like, well, actually he didn't. <laughs> um, but you know, here's what he could do next time to, to do better, to study better, to prepare the presentation. Well, I mean, well, what about this test grade? I'm like, ah, uh, <laughs> he didn't earn it <laughs> or she didn't earn it. So we were immersed in this culture where, um, you know, it's, it's often, put forth that everyone should receive the same grades, get the same trophy because, um, you know, we're, we're the same. Um, I don't know that people actually think we are the same because there's also this emphasis now on, um, you know, diversity, but, um, it, it gets at a little bit at the truth. It is true that we are we are all equal in dignity and worth. So God, you know, creates each and every one of us, however similar or different we are, with equal dignity and worth and, um, you know, loves us all deeply and profoundly. However, we are not the same, okay? We're, we're very different and um, we are called to different things. We're given different gifts and talents. Uh, we're given, you know, different, we have different weaknesses and God wants to work in and through all that. I think it gets at another truth that, you know, while the, the cultural context says, like, you're all unique, you all deserve a trophy, that, that's not necessarily true, but we are all unique and we are all, we all play a part. So think of St. Paul's discussion of the body of Christ. You know, some of us are hands, some of us are feet, some of us are eyes, and, you know, the eye does not say to the foot, like, you can't see as well as I am because a foot was not made to see, and the foot doesn't say to the eye, well, you can't, you know, support the body or you can't walk because an eye is not made to, to walk. So, um, so I say this to, for us to be aware of, okay, we're immersed in this, this cultural context that kind of says we're all the same, we're all equal, um, which is true, okay, we, we are all equal in dignity and worth, we are all um, important in the Isaacquad and in the, the roles we play in the church and the world, but um, as the catechism points out in this paragraph, these paragraphs, 1373 through 1374, we're not all the same. Um, and in this case, the, the sacraments are not all the same. Um, the Eucharist is, is quite different. And its difference is not dependent on us. So it's not like the church, you know, gathers around and votes on which sacrament is the most important or the most necessary or the most needed during the 21st century. No, the, the sacrament of the Eucharist is an objective reality. So the the bread and wine becomes the body and blood of Jesus Christ, and we don't get to decide that or vote on that or say how important or unimportant that is. This is this is God Himself, um, and it's awesome. It's also really freeing that it doesn't depend on us. Um, if if properly confected, so if the priest, um, you know, f reiterates the words of of Christ. Um, at the prayer through the prayer of consecration, then it truly becomes the body of Christ, the blood of Christ, and we receive that. 
Um, that, that real presence is real and present whether we believe in it or not. Um, that idea, that belief was really, <laughs> I think, drilled home for me. God drilled it home for me. My freshman year at Steubenville, um, prior to going to Steubenville, I was a Eucharistic minister in my home parish. And so then when I went to Steubenville, I you know, signed up for this ministry where I would bring the Eucharist to those who were homebound, um, those who couldn't come to church and receive the Eucharist. And I had never been taught how to how to purify the little picks, so that, that little either gold or silver case that holds the Eucharist that you use to bring to the sick or the homebound. I'd never been taught after bringing the Eucharist to a person and returning home, you should really purify that little vessel. So you, you might have observed in the back of church or in the sacristy, um, the sacristan, or it's sometimes the priest himself or a deacon, will take the chalice and the paten from Mass and then purify it um, using water over a sink that goes right into the ground so that if there's any little droplet of the precious blood, there's any little piece of the most precious body, it goes right into the ground um, rather than, you know, like a sewage system um, or something not befitting of the Eucharist of God himself. And so I hadn't been taught to purify that little vessel um, where, you know, for a couple years then I had bring, been bringing the Eucharist to people and unbeknownst to me, there there were little particles of the Eucharist in the pick still, which I was then just like tucking in my purse or keeping on my desk at home, uh, not realizing that that was like a tiny little tabernacle with, you know, a little bit of the the body of Christ present in my bedroom or in my car when I was in high school. And so when I went to Steubenville and I was properly trained to purify that little vessel after delivering the Eucharist, um, I was, first of all, I felt so bad. I was like, Jesus, I didn't know. I'm so sorry. Um, so I think I was invincibly ignorant at that point. I, I, I didn't know. So I didn't, didn't know, wasn't fully cooperating with, I was do, with what I was doing. Um, but I thought like, wow, it was really striking to me in that whether or not I knew it, whether or not I believed it, um, the, the real presence was in that little pix on my desk in my car. Um, Jesus was there whether I, you know, knew it or not, believed it or not. And it just struck me at the, at that moment. And I've continued to think about it since then in that the, the truth in this case, the Eucharist, the real presence is a reality outside of us, um, that we don't determine. Okay. We respond to it. We accept or reject it. We conform our lives to it, or we don't conform our lives to it, but it's independent of us. It, It exists or it doesn't exist. It's real or it's not real. And in this case, we believe that the Eucharist truly becomes the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And he's there, he's present, he's real. And as the catechism tells us today, he's more important than all the other sacraments. Um, whether we feel it or not. Again, we're, we're in a, a culture, a time where there's a lot of emphasis placed on feelings and the emotions. So I might feel the graces of the sacrament of confession a lot more than I do when I receive the Eucharist at Mass. I might walk out of the confessional and feel like, ah, the weight of the world is off my shoulders. I was cleansed. I was healed. I was forgiven. Um, whereas I might go to Mass, receive the Eucharist, and not necessarily feel anything. Um But the good news is it's not dependent on me or my feelings. Um, What I have just received, whether I feel elated or depressed or anything in between, um, I've just received the body and blood of Jesus Christ. I also like to reflect on this in terms of the Eucharist and adoration. Someone recounted to me one time um, that when we sit in front of the Blessed Sacrament, 
exposed in a monstrance during Eucharistic adoration, we, it's like sitting in the sun, okay? Whether we are, let's say we're at the beach, out in the sunshine, whether I am taking a nap on the beach, whether I'm reading a book, whether I'm playing paddle ball, whether I'm running out to you know swim in the ocean, I'm in the presence of the sun and my skin is getting tanned or warmed by that. Uh, when I sit before Jesus, present in the Eucharist, in adoration, I could be sleeping, which I've done before in adoration. I could be, um, you know, drinking a cup of coffee. I could be praying a rosary. I could be reading scripture. I could be checking my phone for text messages. And, and whatever I'm doing, I'm in the presence of the sun, the S-O-N, womp, womp, instead of the S-U-N. And, um, and so I'm, you could say, metaphorically, uh, analogically, the analogy of soaking up the rays or receiving what he wants to give me by being present to the Eucharist. It doesn't depend on me. Now, granted, if I put my, if I place myself in a posture or I am disposed to, you know, receive God more, more prayerfully, more openly, um, then I am likely to get more graces. But regardless, if I'm sitting in the presence of the Eucharist, there's something fundamentally different there than, you know, just sitting in front of my family or friends or, you know, sitting in the quiet in front of no Eucharist. And I'm being transformed by the Eucharist. Again, second person of the Trinity, truly present, which is awesome. And again, freeing that it doesn't depend on me. It depends on God who loves me infinitely and not only created me, but is present to me and is constantly trying to draw me closer to himself. All right. So two, two other things I want to quickly mention, which we'll cover in the second half of the episode, are uh, paragraphs 1392, which says, what material food produces in our bodily life, Holy Communion wonderfully achieves in our spiritual life. In other words, imagine what food does for our body. Well, that's what Holy Communion does for our spirits. 1390, paragraph 1394 says, as bodily nourishment restores lost strength, so the Eucharist strengthens our charity, which tends to be weakened in daily life. I thought that was beautifully said. Our charity, which tends to be weakened in daily life. Okay, whether that's, um, you know, our, our relationships with families, friends, spouses, children, um, whether that's sitting at a traffic light and getting annoyed that the person in front of us is not moving, um, whether it's, you know, interacting with someone who happens to be short or short in their uh, disposition, not short in stature, um, you know, rude or brusque, um, that, that weakens our charity throughout the day and throughout weeks and months and years of life. And so when we receive the Eucharist, we are, we are strengthened and lifted up, um, so that our, our, our charity is renewed, strengthened, bolstered to go out and do it again. Um, you know, interact with these, these sinful human beings, myself included. Paragraph 1395 says, uh, the Eucharist preserves us from future mortal sins. Again, I think we, we hear this or we might learn about this in CCD or, or Catholic, uh, you know, grade school, Catholic high school growing up. Um, but to stop and think about that again for a moment is just just incredible. The, the Eucharist preserves us from future mortal sins. So the more we receive the Eucharist, it's right now, um, you know, in, in the midst of, of COVID and now kind of post-COVID, um, there's a lot of talk of vaccines. It's like the Eucharist is is like a vaccine against mortal sin. It, it really helps us um, avoid and then not commit mortal sin. Of course, the analogy 
breaks down. Most vaccines, you need a little injection of the disease so that your body builds up immunity. Okay, the Eucharist does not give us a little bit of mortal sin so we can then build up our immunity. But um, how beautiful that that the Eucharist just strengthens, strengthens, strengthens us so that we can, it, it becomes easier and easier not to commit mortal sin. So we'll end this first half, half of the episode with, with just a practical takeaway. And I would say let's, uh, in the next week, uh, make a choice for this incredible sacrament, the sacrament that is set apart from the other sacraments, the Eucharist, whether it be to go to Mass one extra day this week and receive Jesus in the Eucharist, um, or to go to an adoration chapel, sit before the Blessed Sacrament and soak up the, the rays of the sun. Um, let's make, make a choice for one more encounter with the Eucharist this week. Uh, Because the Eucharist is Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God himself, who loves us and wants what's best for us even more than we want that ourselves. All right, so we'll take a brief break and then return on the second half to read paragraphs 1373 through 1401. Thanks for sticking around. You are listening to Catholic Light. Thank you for joining me each week as we read through the Catechism of the Catholic Church and discuss some of its beautiful teachings. Hi, and welcome back. We'll now read Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 1373 through 1401. The presence of Christ by the power of his word and the Holy Spirit. Christ Jesus, who died, yes, who was raised from the dead, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us, is present in many ways to his church. In his word in his church's prayer, where two or three are gathered in my name, in the poor, the sick, and the imprisoned, in the sacraments of which he is the author, in the sacrifice of the mass, and in the person of the minister. But he is present, most especially in the Eucharistic species. The mode of Christ's presence under the Eucharistic species is unique. It raises the Eucharist above all the sacraments as the perfection of the spiritual life and the end to which all the sacraments tend. In the most blessed sacrament of the Eucharist, the body and blood, together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore the whole Christ, is truly, really, and substantially contained. This presence is called real, by which is not intended to exclude the other types of presence as if they could not be real too, but because it is presence in the fullest sense. That is to say, it is a substantial presence by which Christ, God and man, makes himself holy and entirely present. It is by the conversion of the bread and wine into Christ's body and blood that Christ becomes present in this sacrament. The Church Fathers strongly affirm the faith of the Church in the efficacy of the Word of Christ and of the action of the Holy Spirit to bring about this conversion. Thus, St. John Chrysostom declares, It is not man that causes the things offered to become the body and blood of Christ, but he who was crucified for us, Christ himself. The priest, in the role of Christ, pronounces these words, but their power and grace are God's. This is my body, he says. This word transforms the thing offered. Excuse me, the things offered. And St. Ambrose says about this conversion, be convinced that this is not what nature has formed, but what the blessing has consecrated. The power of the blessing prevails over that of nature, because by the blessing, nature itself is changed. Could not Christ's word, which can make from nothing what did not exist, change existing things into what they were not before? It is no less a feat to give things their original nature than to change their nature. 
The Council of Trent summarizes the Catholic faith by declaring, because Christ our Redeemer said that it was truly his body that he was offering under the species of bread, it has always been the conviction of the Church of God, and this holy council now declares again, that by the consecration of the bread and wine, there takes place a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord, and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. This change, the Holy Catholic Church has fittingly and properly called transubstantiation. The Eucharistic presence of Christ begins at the moment of the consecration and endures as long as the Eucharistic species subsist. Christ is present, whole and entire, in each of the species, and whole and entire in each of their parts, in such a way that the breaking of the bread does not divide Christ. Worship of the Eucharist In the liturgy of the Mass, we express our faith in the real presence of Christ under the species of bread and wine, by, among other ways, genuflecting or bowing deeply as a sign of adoration of the Lord. The Catholic Church has always offered and still offers to the sacrament of the Eucharist the cult of adoration, not only during Mass, but also outside of it, reserving the consecrated hosts with the utmost care, exposing them to the solemn veneration of the faithful, and carrying them in procession. The tabernacle was first intended for the reservation of the Eucharist in a worthy place so that it could be brought to the sick and those absent outside of Mass. As faith in the real presence of Christ in his Eucharist deepened, the Church became conscious of the meaning of silent adoration of the Lord, present under the Eucharistic species. It is for this reason that the, ta the tabernacle should be located in an especially worthy place in the church and should be constructed in such a way that it emphasizes and manifests the truth of the real presence of Christ in the Blessed Sacrament. It is highly fitting that Christ should have wanted to remain present to his church in this unique way. Since Christ was about to take his departure from his own in his visible form, he wanted to give us his sacramental presence since he was about to offer himself on the cross to save us. He wanted us to have the memorial of the love with which he loved us to the end, even to the giving of his life. In his Eucharistic presence, he remains mysteriously in our midst as the one who loved us and gave himself up for us, and he remains under signs that express and communicate this love. The church and the world have a great need for Eucharistic worship. Jesus awaits us in the sacrament of love, let us not refuse the time to go to meet him in adoration, in contemplation full of faith, and open to making amends for the serious offenses and crimes of the world. Let our adoration never cease. That was Pope John Paul II who said that. That in this sacrament are the true body of Christ and his true blood is something that cannot be apprehended by the senses, says St. Thomas, but only by faith, which relies on divine authority. For this reason, in a commentary on Luke, Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verse 19, which says, This is my body, which is given for you, St. Cyril says, Do not doubt whether this is true, but rather receive the words of the Savior in faith. For since he is the truth, he cannot lie. Godhead here in hiding, whom I do adore, masked by these bare shadows, shape and nothing more. See, Lord, at thy service, lo, lies here a heart. Lost, all lost in wonder at the God thou art. Seeing, touching, tasting are in thee deceived. How says trusty hearing, that shall be believed. What God's Son has told me, take for truth I do. Truth himself speaks truly, or there's nothing true. That's from St. Thomas Aquinas. The Paschal Banquet. The Mass is at the same time, and inseparably, the sacrificial memorial in which the sacrifice of the cross is perpetuated and the sacred banquet of communion with the Lord's body and blood. 
but the celebration of the Eucharistic sacrifice is wholly directed toward the intimate union of the faithful with Christ through communion. To receive communion is to receive Christ himself who has offered himself for us. The altar, around which the church is gathered in the celebration of the Eucharist, represents the two aspects of the same mystery, the altar of the sacrifice and the table of the Lord. This is all the more so since the Christian altar is the symbol of Christ himself, present in the midst of the assembly of his faithful, both as the victim offered for our reconciliation and as food from heaven who is giving himself to us. For what is the altar of Christ if not the image of the body of Christ? Asks St. Ambrose. He says elsewhere, the altar represents the body of Christ, and the body of Christ is on the altar. The liturgy expresses this unity of sacrifice and communion in many prayers. Thus, the Roman Church prays in its anaphora. We entreat you, Almighty God, that by the hands of your holy angel, this offering may be borne to your altar in heaven, in the sight of your divine majesty, so that as we receive in communion at this altar the most holy body and blood of your Son, we may be filled with every heavenly blessing and grace. Take this and eat it, all of you. Communion. The Lord addresses an invitation to us, urging us to receive him in the sacrament of the Eucharist. Truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. To respond to this invitation, we must prepare ourselves for so great and so holy a moment. St. Paul urges us to examine our conscience. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Anyone conscious of a grave sin must receive the sacrament of reconciliation before coming to communion. Before so great a sacrament, the faithful can only echo humbly and with ardent faith the words of the centurion. Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word and my soul will be healed. And in the divine liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, the faithful pray in the same spirit, O Son of God, bring me into communion today with your mystical supper. I shall not tell your enemies the secret, nor kiss you with Judas's kiss. But like the good thief, I cry, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. To prepare for worthy reception of the sacrament, the faithful should observe the fast required in their church. Bodily demeanor, gestures, clothing, ought to convey the respect, solemnity, and joy of this moment when Christ becomes our guest. It is in keeping with the very meaning of the Eucharist that the faithful, if they have the required dispositions, receive communion when they participate in the Mass. As the Second Vatican Council says, that more perfect form of participation in the Mass, whereby the faithful, after the priest's communion, receive the Lord's body from the same sacrifice, is warmly recommended. The Church obliges the faithful to take part in the Divine Liturgy on Sundays and feast days and, prepared by the Sacrament of Reconciliation, to receive the Eucharist at least once a year, if possible during the Easter season. But the Church strongly encourages the faithful to receive the Holy Eucharist on Sundays and feast days, or more often still, even daily. Since Christ is sacramentally present under each of the species, communion under the species of bread alone makes it possible to receive all the fruit of Eucharistic grace. For pastoral reasons, this manner of receiving communion has been legitimately established as the most common form in the Latin rite. But the sign of communion is more complete when given under both kinds, since, as, since in that form the sign of the Eucharistic meal appears more clearly. This is the usual form of receiving communion in the Eastern rites. The Fruits of Holy Communion 
Holy Communion augments our union with Christ. The principal fruit of receiving the Eucharist and Holy Communion is an intimate union with Christ Jesus. Indeed, the Lord said, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Life in Christ has its foundation in the Eucharistic banquet. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me will live because of me. On the Feast of the Lord, when the faithful receive the body of the Son, they proclaim to one another the good news that the first fruits of life have been given, as when the angel said to Mary Magdalene, Christ is risen. Now, too, are life and resurrection conferred on whoever receives Christ. What material food produces in our bodily life, Holy Communion wonderfully achieves in our spiritual life. Communion with the flesh of the risen Christ, a flesh given life and giving life through the Holy Spirit, preserves, increases, and renews the life of grace received at baptism. This growth in Christian life needs the nourishment of Eucharistic communion, the bread for our pilgrimage until the moment of death, when it will be given to us as viaticum. Holy communion separates us from sin. The body of Christ we receive in Holy communion is given up for us, and the blood we drink shed for the many for the forgiveness of sins. For this reason, the Eucharist cannot unite us to Christ without at the same time cleansing us from past sins and preserving us from future sins. For as often as we eat this bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the death of the Lord. If we proclaim the Lord's death, we proclaim the forgiveness of sins. If, as often as his blood is poured out, it is poured for the forgiveness of sins, I should always receive it so that it may always forgive my sins. Because I always sin, I should always have a remedy. That comes from St. Ambrose. As bodily nourishment restores lost strength, so the Eucharist strengthens our charity, which tends to be weakened in daily life. And this living charity wipes away venial sins. By giving himself to us, Christ revives our love and enables us to break our disordered attachments to creatures and root ourselves in him. Since Christ died for us out of love, when we celebrate the memorial of his death at the moment of sacrifice, we ask that love may be granted to us by the coming of the Holy Spirit. We humbly pray that in the strength of this love by which Christ willed to die for us, we, by receiving the gifts, the gift of the Holy Spirit, may be able to consider the world as crucified for us and to be ourselves as crucified to the world. Having received the gift of love, let us die to sin and live for God. That's St. Fulgentius of Ruspi. By the same charity that it enkindles in us, the Eucharist preserves us from future mortal sins. The more we share the life of Christ and progress in his friendship, the more difficult it is to break away from him by mortal sin. The Eucharist is not ordered to the forgiveness of mortal sins. That is proper to the sacrament of reconciliation. The Eucharist is properly the sacrament of those who are in full communion with the church. The unity of the mystical body the Eucharist makes the church. Those who receive the Eucharist are united more closely to Christ. Through it, Christ unites them to all the faithful in one body, the church. Communion renews, strengthens, and deepens this incorporation into the church already achieved by baptism. In baptism, we have been called to form but one body. The Eucharist fulfills this call. The cup of blessing, which we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread which we break is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. If you are the body and members of Christ, then it is your sacrament that is placed on the table of the Lord. It is your sacrament that you receive. To that which you are, to that which you are, 
to that which you are, you respond, amen. Yes, it is true. And by responding to it, you assent to it. For you hear the words, the body of Christ, and respond, amen. Be then a member of the body of Christ, that your amen may be true. That's St. Augustine. The Eucharist commits us to the poor. To receive in truth the body and blood of Christ given up for us, we must recognize Christ in the poorest, his brethren. You have tasted the blood of the Lord, yet you do not recognize your brother. You dishonor this table when you do not judge worthy of sharing your food, someone judged worthy to take part in this meal. God freed you from all your sins and invited you here, but you have not become more merciful. That's St. John Chrysostom. The Eucharist and the Unity of Christians. Before the greatness of this mystery, St. Augustine exclaims, O sacrament of devotion, O sign of unity, O bond of charity. The more painful the experience of the divisions in the church, which break the common participation in the table of the Lord, the more urgent are our prayers to the Lord that the time of complete unity among all who believe in him may return. The Eastern churches that are not in full communion with the Catholic Church celebrate the Eucharist with great love. These churches, although separated from us, yet possess true sacraments, above all by apostolic succession, the priesthood, and the Eucharist, whereby they are still joined to us in closest intimacy. A certain communion in Sacris, and so in the Eucharist, given suitable circumstances and the approval of church authority, is not merely possible but is encouraged. Ecclesial communities derived from the Reformation and separated from the Catholic Church have not preserved the proper reality of the Eucharistic mystery in its fullness, especially because of the absence of the Sacrament of Holy Orders. It is for this reason that, for the Catholic Church, Eucharistic intercommunion with these communities is not possible. However, these ecclesial communities, when they commemorate the Lord's death and resurrection in the Holy Supper, profess that it signifies life and communion with Christ and await his coming in glory. When, in the ordinary's judgment, a grave necessity arises, Catholic ministers may give the sacraments of Eucharist, penance, and anointing of the sick to other Christians, not in full communion with the Catholic Church, who ask for them of their own will, provided that they give evidence of holding the Catholic faith regarding these sacraments and possess the required dispositions. That brings us to the end of our reading selection and the end of our episode for the week. Thanks for joining me. Between this week and next week's episode, please connect with me on Instagram at Catholic Light Podcast. Please pray for me. I'll be praying for you. And in the meantime, God bless you. Thanks for joining me this week on Catholic Light. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your family and your friends. And connect with me through Facebook and Instagram. I'll see you next week. And in the meantime, God bless you.